Welcome to the last episode of this first season of Ambassadors of Hope, a podcast dedicated to growing the CE5 initiative by sharing the stories of the people who have been a part of it. In this episode, I go in-depth in sharing my own backstory about how CE5 entered my own life. I think it's important for you to get a deeper sense of who I am and where I'm coming from in providing this podcast to you. For that reason, this episode is on the longer side, about twice as long as the previous episodes. The first half sets the stage in regards to where I was at in my life and what shaped my worldview before encountering the possibility of contact. The second half, starting about 20 minutes in and going to the end, covers my personal process of integrating the knowledge and protocols that form the basis for becoming a part of the CE5 initiative. I hope you will enjoy hearing my story. I've put a lot into this episode and discussed some things I've only ever shared with a handful of people prior to it going live. Thank you for listening through and for being a part of this journey with me. We are exposed to so many messages, so many causes, so much media, and I have feared that any message I would make would get lost among the commotion of all the other voices out there. But that fear does nothing but get in the way of the things I most know to be true. I know that we as humanity are in great trouble, environmentally, economically, politically, spiritually, and I also know that we can turn the ship of humanity towards a brighter shore. In fact, towards a shore that is nothing short of the greatest peace and prosperity that we can imagine for all people and for the community of life on Earth. How can I be optimistic about our capacity to turn the ship towards that brighter future? How can I? when political gridlock is the mainstay of government, when corruption has infected the highest echelons of power in our world, when the biosphere is on a course of utter devastation with one of the greatest extinction events taking place right now, when rather than being a uniting force, mainstream religion is often the cause of some of the sharpest divisions between people, when the economy is structured in a way which leaves billions of us in perpetual poverty of knowledge, of material means, and of hope. This is a story about hope. Hope for a world our children will be proud to live in. A world which is sustainable, peaceful, and marked by the light of oneness. Truth be told, I entered adulthood not having any real hope for the creation of a sustainable and peaceful world. I understood that extreme progress towards peace and sustainability were what was needed, but I saw no path forward for myself to contribute to it. It took a period of deep depression and soul-searching for me to come out on the other side to learn to follow those with the audacity to exclaim their truths and to imagine the means of transitioning towards a new earth. 
I learned to deeply hope for a world marked by unity among all people. I learned to seek the creation of a civilization which would live up to the opportunity of a truly sustainable and regenerative way of life. And I was inspired by the vision of a far future where a peaceful humanity would eventually travel amongst the stars. What follows is the story of how I learned to hope for the highest good. It's the end of November, 2010. Turning up the volume on my headphones to a comfortable level, I reclined on the long sofa in the living room. It had been a long time since I had experienced a guided meditation, but I was ready and willing to see how this one would go. I would never have imagined it, but this evening I would be taking the first steps into an experience that would change the course of my life. After a long day at work and school, I would normally stay up a bit later than my grandma and auntie to do some reading or to write in my journal. So that night, as usual, I had the downstairs to myself. I had heard of the idea of CE5 just a few days earlier and was eager to try my hand at something that supposedly anyone could do. CE5 stands for Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind, and in contrast with other designated types of close encounter, is intended to mean human-initiated contact with extraterrestrials. This would be distinguished from more passive forms of contact, like, for example, when someone notices an ET craft that just happens to be flying by. CE5 is the idea that humans can invite them to come and they will show up. I had recently learned that one of the most surefire ways that CE5 encounters had been successfully actualized was by using a set of protocols centered around meditating on the infinite or non-local aspect of the mind itself. By mind is meant the idea of an infinite sea of consciousness, of which our own individual awarenesses are like little portals to. Making contact with ETs, therefore, is a process that can easily be developed and practiced in the meditative state. One simply sends out a beacon signal, in this case in the form of coherent thought, to ETs, wherever they may be, through the limitless field of consciousness that underlies and fills our physical universe. The theory is that if any ETs happen to get the signal, they may just choose to respond in some way. That core idea, that consciousness, is not bound by matter, space, or time, fit in perfectly with my own understanding and experiences up to that point. I'd grown up in a family and spiritual community which acknowledged the universality of the one mind, called God by some, and I had deduced through my own experiences that at least that idea, what I believed to be the core of all religious and spiritual teachings, was true. The leap to seeking contact with extraterrestrials from my grandma's sofa 
that involves a little more backstory. One of my memories of being a child in elementary school was chatting with my best friend about the UFO question. We were seven years old or so, and we read every book on the subject that we could get our hands on at the library. We were fascinated by the idea of worlds meeting, imagining the significance of flying saucers. If they were indeed being seen by people, who, who was guiding them, and why would they be visiting our world? I remember one afternoon when we were sitting in the playground along the wooden border of a sandbox. I put forward the idea that perhaps the supposed ETs were in fact humans from the future who were coming back to take a peek at their past. Perhaps having conquered time travel, they would be interested to look at human history on Earth to witness what led to their development as a civilization. No way to prove it, but I was so intrigued by the possibilities and often imagined what direction we are moving in as a species. What were the forces that shaped our evolution? And what would shape us in the future? And if we are only one of many worlds, what would it be like to witness the arc of evolution on another planet besides Earth? In general, the topic of UFOs, as it has been known, was and is treated as the subject of jokes, of ridicule, of insanity, of science fiction, of horror, and of altogether unwholesomeness. It's in that atmosphere that my interest in the topic was easily allowed to dissipate. Since those moments in elementary school, I had not given much serious thought at all to the idea of ETE contact let alone being able to experience it in my lifetime. I'd resigned myself to the notion that, given the high likelihood of starfaring ET intelligence existing, chances are the ETs were more or less pacifists in our earthly affairs. There was no reason for me to be concerned with the idea of extraterrestrial contact since People in places of power would be the first to know anything and would handle any relevant issues for us, the people. After all, popular culture taught us that if peaceful ETs encountered a human, the first thing they would want is to be taken to our leader. And from any contact I had with the subject in popular culture, I knew the whole topic of UFOs was a minefield of weirdos and loonies, I did not want to be associated with silliness, especially if it meant that it would be something that separated me from other people or made them think I was uncool. Like many, I had a fear of missing out, and I also had a fear of being left out. It was that same fear of social isolation that kept me in the closet about being gay until my 18th birthday, and that same fear that also led to my mental health declining into a deep depression shortly after. My adolescence took place during the George W. Bush administration, sandwiched between 9-11 and the economic recession of 2008. I was a closeted, gay, anti-war California boy who liked writing and playing rock and roll and jazz songs, 
and didn't really want anything much to do with politics. The more I learned about how the world was run and about the global crises of social and ecological injustice, the more I believed that there was nothing I could personally do to affect any meaningful change. And so, I believed I would be better off living life for my own enjoyment, not paying much attention at all to the idea that I would be able to help anybody facing extreme poverty, let alone stop the rainforest from being cut down. I thought I had it hard enough as it was, struggling to come to terms with my sexuality and whether or not the family and friends I had would ever accept me for who I was. My fear stopped me from even really exploring who I was honestly. Essentially, I believed I was a nobody. I believed I was powerless. And so I was. That's not to say that I didn't enjoy life. I cocooned myself in my niche musical interests, smoked weed when I felt like I wanted some rose tint on the world, and went through the motions of eventually getting into college. The fun, as it was, would end much sooner than I could have imagined. It was during my first year of college that unrestrained depression would hit me hard. Feeling more detached from the people around me, I felt oblivious to what was going on in the world. My focus, however fuzzy, was aimed on how I could continue the struggle to get myself through each day. Days of emotional and mental torment turned into weeks. Weeks turned into months. The challenge continued. Ultimately, the dark depths of that time were a great learning ground for me, and one which, in time, would allow me to grow into a kinder and more understanding person. By the end of that year of 2008, my 20th year, life gradually started to feel more like an adventure I could take part in than like an impossible burden I had to carry. I began the process of cultivating a new sense of wonder about the world. It started with some talk therapy, long walks and bike rides out in nature, and getting off the social media and entertainment side of the internet for a long while. After cutting out drugs, alcohol, and most of my digital distractions, I daily confronted all the pain and hurt that lay inside of me. And very gradually, with lots of starts and stops, I began accepting and coming to terms with it. I learned to look at life from a more non-attached place and held on to a bruised hope that something like destiny existed and would see me through to brighter days. Now looking back on that time, I realize I was actually allowing myself to find a meditative state of mind more often and really kind of carry that with me in my day-to-day -day life. Eventually, I did begin feeling more hopeful and interested in the opportunities of each day. A growing curiosity grew in me about what the future could hold. Little did I know what I would go on to learn in the coming months and years was going to completely shake my entire worldview and push me in a direction I would have never expected. Coming off the heels of depression in 2008, 
I moved back to my hometown on the central coast of California, began exercising regularly and generally taking more ownership and responsibility for health and well-being. After learning about the unsustainability of my previous approach to life, I started to become very interested in the sustainability of human life in general. Questions about our industrialized food economy, the money system, and the balance between liberty and human rights filled my mind, and in my endless stream of curiosity, I went to work looking for answers. One of the first things that began to perplex me was just how illogical our food system seemed to be. How could it be that our food system in the United States, as plentiful as it seemed, could be so nonsensical as to rely on the shipping of goods vast distances using fuels, which were also shipped vast distances and which were polluting the very atmospheres and ecosystems that were responsible for life on this planet? Why would we as a society continue to use massive industrial agricultural practices that depleted the soil of its natural vitality? And why would we de-skill our industrialized, consumerized populace from the joy of working with our hands, learning about plants and animals, and feeding and taking care of our families from seed to table? Why, when the world produces more than enough food to feed every woman, man, and child, were people in the world still dying of starvation? These questions spurred me into action. I spent several years doing a deep dive into research on sustainability science, regenerative agriculture, and economic models which organize value in much more holistic terms. I dug deep into concepts like permaculture, slow food, slow money, partnership economics, the gift economy, and there was so much information and inspiration to be found in these movements that ask such deep questions about the purpose and direction of human culture. I was fascinated by the dedicated change makers in this mission of transferring power and autonomy over our human relationship with the earth and the health of our fellow community members from large and overall confusing vested corporate interests to the will of the good people of earth and re-envisioning how we imagine autonomy over our human relationship with the earth and the health of our fellow community members. I spent a good couple of years going into a deep study of permaculture-related principles and practices that took me from volunteer farm stays in Portugal to a visit to check out the organic farm at Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California. I also learned a lot about holistic approaches to health, such as using mindful movement and food as forms of preventative medicine. By 2010, I had created a generally more crystallized worldview in my mind that revolved around healthy eating and exercise. And I also maintained a passionate interest in working on a local level to improve access to locally grown foods and support local businesses and banks. I still had major questions though. If the science of sustainability was in the best interest of everybody on earth, how come the top political and economic leaders in the world were not championing things like regenerative agriculture and local energy technologies? 
Soon I would learn that one of the main reasons we weren't living in abundance was because major social and technological breakthroughs were being hidden from the public by deeply misguided and secretive individuals within the highest echelons of the fields of banking, energy generation, media and information, and the most hard-to-reach corners of the military-industrial and intelligence complex. So like I said, it was 2010, and one evening in September, while I was eating dinner in my tiny studio apartment, I looked out the window and noticed something strange outside in the night sky. An object was flying over the bay, quite erratically and illogically, swerving and turning with colored lights on it that cycled from green to red, yellow to blue, and for seconds at a time turned off and seemed to disappear against the backdrop of the night sky. I ran up to my neighbor's balcony to get a better view and to ask them what they thought it was. They had no idea what it could be either. It went on for about 10 to 15 minutes and I thought, wow, this is the closest thing I've seen to a UFO. I was sure that many other people saw it, but I didn't meet anyone else who saw it until a week or two later when I saw it again while out at a party. Someone there informed me that they knew what it was, that it was a gliding drone craft that was a project of some university students in the area. I was a bit let down to learn it wasn't something more out of the ordinary, but nevertheless, the initial experience and excitement inspired me to do some more research and dig deeper on the subject of UFOs, looking for what was actually true amongst all the stories out there on the web. I asked myself, what about those supposed flying saucers I remember hearing about as a kid? Was there any new credible evidence or information I was missing on the topic? A quick internet search led me to find that no less than hundreds of highly credible military, government, scientific, and corporate witnesses had come forward to pull the curtain on the biggest secret in human history. I discovered the Disclosure Project. If you do a search for the Disclosure Project, high on the list of search results will be the video of the event held on May 9th, 2001 at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. This film footage shows around a dozen brave men and women testifying in what was, at the time, the most watched live broadcast the Press Club had ever seen and the most watched live stream video on the internet. These individuals share details about their own involvement and experience with events having to do with the UFO subject, as pilots and as officials within the U.S. government, military, and the corporate world. And the Disclosure Project promised that there were more highly credible individuals who had come forward on the subject and were willing to testify before Congress regarding the matter. By 2019, the number of witnesses gathered by the Disclosure Project, now running as Serious Disclosure, is above 900 individuals. The footage of this National Press Club event 
in addition to follow-up research I did, convinced me that the most important truths related to the UFO subject were being ruthlessly kept secret by groups within highly compartmentalized projects known as unacknowledged special access projects. These groups have operations which allow them to be funded using unaccounted for black budget funds and to carry out works without any approval or authorization by any existing national elected governmental chains of command. Essentially, official matters to do with the UFO subject have no clear oversight by elected officials. These projects are run by rogue elements within the military-industrial complex. They are transnational in nature, with links to the most powerful individuals in the energy and banking sectors. And they are run in quasi-governmental, quasi-corporate, and completely illegal fashion. Additionally, important advances in science and knowledge that have come into those projects over the last 70 years have the potential to transform our civilization into one of true sustainability and peaceful coexistence. The environmental devastation, social unrest, and poverty that are the marks of our current world order could be wiped out very quickly. To be honest, the gravity of all the information I was uncovering frightened me. I was also having some difficulty filtering through all of the deliberate disinformation and sensationalism that clutter the dark corners of conspiracy-oriented websites. Ultimately, I decided to take some time to myself to meditate and to figure out how I would proceed in a way which felt right to me. I packed my bags and retreated to the countryside for a month, originally with something of an intention to map out some kind of insulated existence for myself as a hermit tucked away and hopefully figure out how to grow my own food so that I would be able to be self-sufficient and hide away from all of the troubles of the world that now were so blaringly apparent to me. However, during that month, my approach to the world's problems would become rapidly transformed as I began to let myself view things from a higher vantage point. In the expanse of consciousness that I was becoming better acquainted with in meditation. In that period away, the wheels that were turning in my mind were also being ever more inspired by another project headed by the founder of the Disclosure Project, Dr. Stephen Greer. That project was the CE5 initiative. Dr. Greer and those who have worked with him had claimed that they had found the Rosetta Stone of interplanetary communication and that they were putting it to good use. They said that they had been engaging in a set of protocols designed to facilitate our own ability as humans to initiate contact with beings who came from other planets. Now, I had been hearing a lot about paradigm-shifting concepts and ideas, but this one took the cake for requiring the highest level of suspended social norm disbelief to fathom and entertain. My main concern was figuring out whether at least some elements of Dr. Greer's work could be snake oil. By now, I was certainly convinced by the sincerity of the Disclosure Project witnesses and sheer amount of information provided by the research that had been unearthed by Dr. Greer and his team. The standout takeaway 
was that the UFO subject was indeed shrouded by the highest levels of secrecy within the paragovernmental power structures of our societies, and that, in general, actual governmental involvement on the issue was vastly compromised by rogue, unacknowledged elements. The next step that Dr. Greer took of ostensibly putting the power in the hands of everyday people to easily make contact with extraterrestrial biological entities was a jump that necessitated further research for me to reach some sort of satisfaction and level of real trust. The organization Dr. Greer formed was called CSETI, the Center for the Study of Extraterrestrial Intelligence. I'd read that it was a nonprofit organization that was an umbrella over all of Dr. Greer's work, and that intrigued me. Since I worked for a nonprofit at the time and had access to the national database, I did my due diligence by looking into whether CSETI was actually a registered nonprofit organization, and I discovered it was, and that all the data I could find checked out. This put me at ease enough to actually purchase some of the training materials from CSETI to investigate the statements about CE5 myself independently. In terms of other evidence that would satisfy me about the possibility of using consciousness as the main tool by which we can communicate with off-world peoples, I did not need to stretch my own beliefs so far, because my own spiritual experience in life had convinced me that at least in theory, the type of contact being touted by those involved in the CE5 initiative could not be disproven. In fact, I believed it was highly likely that by going inward and reaching higher states of consciousness, that that would be the best way to truly know the deepest truths about the universe. One of the resources that was made available on CSETI's website at the time was a book that chronicled the first 17 years of experiences of the central team of people involved in the CE5 initiative. It was called Contact, Countdown to Transformation. The book was based on transcriptions of audio recordings of discussions between different members of expedition groups who had gone out together with Dr. Greer over that 17-year period. I was particularly struck by the sincerity, the attention to detail, and the grounded positive perspective from the entries in that book. In short, my internal BS detector was not going off. Quite contrary, the stories that came through in that book filled me with a renewed sense of hope and wonder, and also of belonging and kinship with this group of people who appeared to be on the cutting edge of both scientific and spiritual endeavor. It was that sense of unity and comfort that I felt while reading that book that ultimately shook me away from the idea to flee the world's problems as I had so naively thought I could. I was now, and I still am, convinced that the world's problems cannot be avoided by anyone in this time that we live in. They must be confronted head-on with a more powerful and true vision of the world which has been in waiting a world of peace, universal. So now you will understand a bit more about the mindset I was in while attempting my first CE5 meditation on my grandma's sofa. 
In the protocol, besides going through the coherent thought sequencing of guiding the ETs to our location on Earth, we are also taught to develop the skill of remote perception, or remote viewing as it is known more popularly. I practiced the CTS, coherent thought sequencing, and imagined that I could remote view distant places and actually see ET beings, which could perceive my reaching out in consciousness. I ended up meditating in the same way every day for a few weeks, asking for some kind of undeniable sign from the ETs that I was indeed making contact with them, even as I visualized it in the meditative state. I wanted to be sure that what I was picturing or viewing in my meditations was not just my imagination and wishful thinking. I wanted to be sure this educational process of CE5 was legitimate, was a worthwhile activity to be engaged in. The specific request was for the ETs to communicate with me in any way that was safe and appropriate for themselves and for me. And from my readings, I knew that they could manifest in a variety of ways besides just appearing as a so-called UFO or flying saucer. In the stories found in the book from C. Seti, they would interact using things like ambient sound that seemed to come out of nowhere, or frequencies out of electronic equipment like electromagnetic frequency readers or radar detectors, flashes of light of varying colors either in the sky or in the immediate surroundings, and also more subtle things like etheric and astral light forms visible by using a soft gaze on our part as observers. They might even make contact through the physical sense of being touched. Knowing that, I thought the likelihood of an actual visual sighting of a fully materialized craft in broad daylight was probably very low. But it turns out that that is what happened. It was on one afternoon in the beginning of January 2011. Beautiful clear blue sky, not a cloud in sight. I was driving down the main street of my hometown towards the east, and suddenly at about 35 degrees up from the horizon, right in front of me, I saw a seamless silver disc hovering motionless. It did not look very far away, probably less than a mile up in the air. It was there one moment, and then after two seconds or so, it just dissolved from view and disappeared, as if suddenly submerged into the blue sky behind it. I could hardly believe what had happened, and I did not immediately tell anyone about the experience at first, but as I reflected back on it over the next few days, I realized that that appearance was an actual ET vehicle, appearing in response to the protocol practice that I had been engaged in for the few weeks prior. After that day, I went on to help form a CE5 working group in my home area in California. We had some amazing experience that have laid the groundwork for deeper and deeper dedication to this movement on my part. After feeling more confident in our ability to establish confirmed contact, I organized an expedition to gather with some people from further afield in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains of Northern California. I also worked with a couple of small groups in Denmark and the south of Sweden where I lived for a few years between 2011 and 2014. 
In addition to my own independent group field work, I have had the opportunity to train with the senior CSETI team on several expeditions over the last few years as well. Suffice it to say that my own personal experiences of contact are too many to recount in this short podcast, but I plan to share my CE5 experiences more in later essays and podcasts to come. The main purpose of this media series is to highlight the stories of the many other people around the world who are engaging with this exciting project independently and with spectacular results. In my involvement in the CE5 initiative over the last eight years, I have spent time with people from all walks of life who have all been personally transformed by this work and are looking to share their love for it with more people. It's the inspiration of that love and hope at the heart of this movement that first brought me into it when I read the accounts of the early CE5 team experiences that took place in the 90s and 2000s. And it is that same inspiration which I intend to share with even more people by providing an audio storytelling platform for the many diverse voices of the CE5 initiative to ring far and wide. My intention is to add my own modest media production skills to the growing chorus of people around the world who are blogging, vlogging, and podcasting on this topic. The more people who are doing CE5, the more of a field effect it has in consciousness. And as that grows, so will our opportunity to move into the next chapter of human evolution with less unnecessary difficulty. To hear more intimate and personal stories from CE5 ambassadors from around the world, you can follow this podcast and listen to the other episodes that are being uploaded. The name of the podcast is Ambassadors of Hope. You'll be able to find all the other episodes and other resources at ce5podcast.com. I also want to provide more content for people to get inspired on after getting acquainted with the subject through the work of Dr. Stephen Greer. One of Dr. Greer's main hopes is for the people of Earth to stand up and take the knowledge of the truth into their own hands. I believe that it is our great duty to take whatever steps we can toward that end for the sake of all things good and just. Since 2011, when I first really started getting into CE5, Dr. Greer and his team have been ever busy creating more resources and documentation to educate the world about the topics of disclosure, new energy technologies, and CE5. Despite virtually no mainstream media coverage, the recently released documentary, Unacknowledged, has spent time ranked number one in terms of documentary viewership rates on popular platforms like iTunes and Netflix. Now, Dr. Greer and his team, under the banner of Serious Disclosure, are in the development of their next feature-length documentary film, Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind, Contact, Consciousness, and the Human Future. To be a part of history and to help fund this important documentary, which will bring the concept of CE5 more into the global consciousness, I encourage you to go to the crowdfunding page at ce5film.com. I hope you enjoyed listening to this brief overview of my story and how I got involved in this movement. And just as with all of the other episodes, I hope that you are inspired to go out and initiate your own contact experience, adding into this growing movement in the field of consciousness on this planet. Are you ready to see what happens when you go into the CE5 protocols with clear intent and a hopeful heart? Step up and get more involved today, don't wait. 
there is a wealth of training resources at SeriousDisclosure.com. Again, that's S-I-R-I-U-S Disclosure.com. I also have a free PDF guide on the basics of CE5 available at CE5Podcast.com. Soon, there will also be a guided meditation available there to help you out with your work. All the resources I've put together and the work that I've put into creating this podcast series are available as a gift to you. I'm trying my best to make this info more accessible and easy to implement. If you are thankful for that gift and want more from this podcast and from me, your support in the form of subscriptions, reviews, or donations on Patreon or PayPal are greatly appreciated. And with that, this concludes our first season of the show, but we have many more episodes in development for the next season, so stay tuned. My name is Andre Cardoso. Thank you so much for listening to Ambassadors of Hope. Peace and love.